I'm Jeff Cohen. You're about to meet Eve Harrow, who has one of the most diversified backgrounds of anyone I've ever interviewed. She's a veteran podcaster, experienced Israeli tour guide, well-known public speaker and educator, and the director of tourism and community development for the One Israel Fund. She even served for a decade as a councilwoman in Efrat. Along the journey, she also found her way to Jewish observance. Eve joins me now to share her story. Eve, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Happy to be here, Jeff. So I appreciate you taking the time from Israel to talk to us. And there is a ton of stuff to get to in your bio, but let's take the story from the beginning. Give me a sense of the background of your parents, your grandparents, and where they came from. All right. So my mother was raised in Connecticut to a very Orthodox family. They were really the only ones of the family who had come from Russia that stayed Orthodox. Everyone else started working on Shabbat and kind of integrating into America. And, you know, it's pretty clear we're talking, you know, a century later that they don't identify or didn't marry Jews and they're kind of out of the family. My father was raised here in Jerusalem. He was born in 1932 in Berlin to, I would say, very secular German family, although it's not really clear exactly where they fell on there. But in 1933, when the Nazis came to power and my father was just a baby, they moved to, then it was British Mandate Palestine, and he was raised in Jerusalem. Uh, had a very difficult time, was 15 years old during the siege of Jerusalem in 1948. A lot of war, a lot of death. Parents got divorced, grandfather died, tremendous poverty. I mean, they they ate something called kubeza, which is like this spinach kind of grass that grows outside Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, in one of the first temple toilets that was found in the city of David, there are remnants of kubeza. In minus wow. 586, the Jews were eating kubeza when they were under siege. So that seems to be the siege food of Jerusalem, uh, all joking aside. But anyway, they, my mother moved to Israel in the 50s and met my dad. And long story short, they ended up in the United States. And um, we went to conservative day school in New Jersey. But our home was, you know, like lighting Friday night candles, but not at, on time or making kiddush, but not on kosher wine, keeping kosher at home, but not out of the home, etc. Right. And so you're... Mother was raised religious, but at some point kind of went Left off it. the path. And so when she right. met your dad, they were both secular? It's hard to get the true story, either because memories change or because secrets are kept. But that's pretty much the way <laughs> I heard. But that's Or both. Um, but that's pretty much the way I understood it. So my dad's family, I really, I mean, I'm named after his mom who died when she was 50 in Jerusalem. But, um, but it was my mom's family that I really had contact with, my grandparents and my aunt, her sister. And they were both Orthodox. So that definitely had an influence on me. Okay, so your story starts in the United States where you were born. So where was the early part of your childhood? So we were in New Jersey until I was nine. And then my dad transferred out to Los Angeles. That's where I finished growing up. I went to high school there, met my husband there, started college there at UCLA. After I got married, when I was 20, we moved to St. Louis where my husband was in medical school. So I got my bachelor's from Washington University in St. Louis. And then we moved back to LA because I got into UCLA dental school because we wanted to make Aliyah, but doctors don't do well in Israel and dentists do. So I went to dental school for a year, hated it. And we already had our daughter and I never saw her. So I quit dental school, went to psych grad school, got my master's in psych. My husband finished his training. And then in 1998, we moved to Israel. With, we already had three kids by that time. Okay, so you just advanced the story pretty far. So I want to unpack a few of these things before we get to raising a family. Okay. So you're in the United States. 
starting on the East Coast and moving to the West Coast. Were you in public school? Did your parents send you to a Jewish school? No. We were in Jewish school. That was something my mother insisted on. She herself was a Jewish educator, and that was something she realized was like super important, is if you don't get a Jewish education, the chances of you feeling like you belong to the people or having any understanding go way down. And I agree with that totally. I actually think that's one of the big mistakes that, let's say, the federations made is in not subsidizing Jewish education. I think we would have a lot more people involved in the Jewish world if they had you know, gotten that while they were growing up, if it wasn't so ridiculously expensive. And it's a shame. So were you in a school that had mostly kids who were being raised observant or there was a mix? No, we went to an Orthodox school in L.A. because that was the only one that was really available at the time. Um, which was kind of awkward in some ways because we weren't Orthodox. So, you know, like my friends were going to B'nai Kiva on Shabbat and, and they wouldn't eat in my house, which kind of makes it difficult, you know, when you're a kid and you're having a birthday party or you want to have people over. There were a couple other girls like that in the school, but, but in the main, yeah, so that was kind of a mixed bag. But I did learn a lot, you know, learned a lot of Bible studies and it was an Orthodox day school. So got that whole basket of knowledge, which has certainly served me well over the years. So that can be tricky because I remember when my kids were starting out in kindergarten and I wasn't raised religious and the head of school was telling me, because you want to raise your kids observant, the most important thing is to model at home the same things that they're learning in school so that there's consistency. And if you're not doing that, it's going to be like very tricky for the kids, both in terms of what they're learning and also in terms of making friends. So it sounds like you had some of that. I'm wondering if you could share a story or two about what that feeling was like growing up. There was definitely that dissonance. There were a lot of girls at the time whose parents were survivors. I mean, you're talking about like in the 70s, you know, so it was a very interesting mix. It was a small class. There were girls who came to school with bags under their eyes because their parents had been up all night with nightmares and screaming in Hungarian. You know, there were, were other girls who were very very snobby. Their parents were very, very wealthy and we weren't. So I was definitely very, very shy, you know, very reticent, did not have a lot of self-confidence at all. My home was not the most nurturing arena you could imagine, a lot of criticism and a lot of, because of their different backgrounds, it wasn't an easy place. Uh, They eventually got divorced many, many years later, my parents. So it was, um, what ended up happening was I read a lot. I really immersed myself in books, which is also turns out to have been very, very helpful as uh, as my life went on, because I, I really know a lot of history. And, you know, I mean, reading is is amazing. Uh, grasp of vocabulary, a high level of English. So but it was lonely. I can definitely say that it was lonely, which when I look back, definitely set the stage for some of the other things that happened in my life. So did any part of you, though, while you were in school think, oh, this is an interesting lifestyle. I wonder if this is something I would pursue when I'm an adult or you didn't think that way as a kid? I saw it. Well, just something that I skipped is when I was eight years old, we came to Israel for the first time. My father was reunited with his father, whom he'd been estranged from for many, many years. He came to visit us in New Jersey. I remember them arguing a lot in German. And then he died of a heart attack while he was staying with us. So we were supposed to come to Israel anyway for some wedding of a relative of my father's. We ended up coming with my grandfather's body in the cargo hold and burying him. And my father sat some sort of shiva. I don't remember exactly. But what I know is that I had a lot of freedom. I was in Jerusalem. No one was really paying attention to me. And I absolutely and irrevocably fell in love with Israel. And we weren't religious then. And it was kind of a miserable trip also 
but I just felt I, that I belonged in a way that I hadn't felt that I belonged anywhere else. Just hearing Hebrew being spoken, and it's not like I really knew Hebrew, I, and I was eight. I don't know what it is, but this place has always been a porthole for me, and it started a very, very long time ago, and that kind of set my life. I was coming back to Israel. I didn't know what else was going on. I didn't The religious stuff I didn't, wasn't sure of, but I was one day going to be living in Israel, and that was really, I was very focused from that moment on, and I was, I was a little girl. So the religious things came in, to get back to your question, they came in along the way. I came into Hashem in a very personal way. Now that I look back, I was definitely searching for unconditional love. And I found it. The creator of the world handed it to me and has been with me ever since. You know, there's that, um, there's, I don't know if it's an adage about the two, the two sets of footsteps in the sand, right? And then in the hard times of your life, you look and there's only one set of footsteps and you say to God, like, where were you? And the answer is, who do you think was carrying you? And that is exactly how I feel up until this very day. I have, we all have a job in this world. Most of us try and do something I think that we're not supposed to do because it looks like more fun or someone else is doing it. And I was able to figure it out with a lot of help. But all that happened like at a pretty young age. Right. So I'm wondering what time period of your life that is, because you mentioned eight, you're in Israel and you're feeling this connection, like I want to live here, but it's not from a religious perspective. And now you just kind of talked about Hashem kind of coming into your life. What, what stage is that where you start thinking there's a, there's a piece there? So like at 11 or 12, I decided that I wanted to keep Shabbat, that I wanted to keep kosher. I wasn't, you know, going to eat out anymore, but that didn't go down so well. My father is not a big fan of Judaism or God or religion in general. Arguing with him as I got older also enhanced my ability to debate, which I would need later in life. <laughs> um, seriously, Friday night, we would just sit at the table for hours and talk about things. And, and there were a lot of things I disagreed with him on, but um, I was able to find the places where I could make my point. I don't know if he was listening, and he definitely wasn't convinced, but it was a very good breeding ground for what I would end up doing later. So at 11 or 12, I decided that, um, well, first I decided I didn't want to be religious at all because the whole thing was stupid because like going halfway just didn't make any sense. So I might as well go out Friday night. I mean, I was young. I wasn't exactly going to go to a bar when I was 12, but, um, but then that didn't feel good. The kind of letting it all go felt really bad. Like there was no anchor. So I said, well, if that way isn't working, then let me try the other way. And so I gradually added, you know, the, the observance uh, into my life. And when I started dating, when I was about 16, I was looking for someone who was modern Orthodox and specifically somebody who would move to Israel, which wasn't that, e it's not that easy to find. A lot of people talk about coming, especially in the modern Orthodox world, but it's a hard thing to do. Not everybody's able to do it. But I did meet my husband who, you know, when we were 16, I was, I went to B'nai Kiva then at the time to camp and I met him. And uh, we've been together ever since. Okay, so what was his background at the time you met him? So his parents initially also weren't religious, but he was born when they were in their 40s. He's the youngest of six. And so by the time he came around, they were very well established in the Orthodox community in Los Angeles and, you know, president of the big synagogue there in Beverly Hills, Beth Jacob, and very, very involved in the modern Orthodox world there, which wasn't that big at the time. Again, you're talking the 70s and the 80s in L.A. Like if you saw someone with a kippah, 90 percent, you knew who it was. You know, mm -hmm. there were two. There's a pizza place and a pastrami place. It wasn't anything. <laughs> like LA is now. So that was his, you know, he's been Orthodox since birth. So he has that, but in your family, you're the only one who is 
living an observant life. Do you have siblings? Are they supportive of this? Are they going to the Jewish schools also? I have one sibling, and she also kind of followed me in, in those ways. It was a battle. It was definitely a battle, but it was worth it. I was looking at a bigger picture, not just what was fun for the moment, but a bigger picture. But again, I was coming at it from a very different place than my Orthodox friends, who that was their milieu, that was their home. They didn't even have to think about it. Uh, I had to think about everything. So you and your future husband, what's his name? Earl. Very Jewish name, Earl, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you and Earl are 16... He was 18. I was 16. So yeah. he's like a senior in high school and you're a he, sophomore, he junior a, when he you He was meet? already in college. He's very smart. He skipped a couple grades. So yeah. So he's in college, you're in high school, and you're having conversations like, if this is going to work out, we're going to live an observant lifestyle and we're going to move to Israel. Are you having that level of conversation? No, that was obvious, though. It was going to be an Orthodox home. I mean, there was no there was no question. That's what I wanted. And that's what he was already living. So, um, yeah, and Israel very much figured prominently in there. His entire family, he had a sister here since 1969. And his entire, except for one sister, his entire family eventually moved to Israel. There's a lot of heroes now in Israel. So that was also very unusual for Los Angeles. There were really just a couple of families that did that. Rabbi Dolgan and his whole family, the Weisels. There were a few. But most most did not do that. And especially a family of doctors who, you know, had a pretty nice lifestyle in L.A. Um, and medicine here is different, but very devoted, very, very devoted to Israel and to the future of the Jewish people. So I was really blessed to be able to, you know, join that kind of family. And how supportive were the two families of this relationship as it started flourishing? I, w- I would think that his family would be supportive because he's Orthodox and you're on that journey or no. And what's your family thinking I don't know exactly what his family was thinking, but um, based on what I know of my mother-in-law, and she's passed on since then, um, you know, no one is ever good enough for her children. So I'm sure I, I fell into that rubric very easily, but it was okay. I mean, I'm sure my father especially was not happy because he thought I was just going through a phase. But if I'm going to marry someone who's Orthodox and who wants to move to Israel, then it's not a phase anymore. Right. It's your life. Yeah, it's my life and it's my life choices. But you know... You can't control your children, something that he eventually learned and that I eventually learned. Mm-hmm. We all, <laughs> we all <that>. eventually <laughs> learn. Exactly. So, um, you know, I made my decisions and uh, and I stuck with them. So it, it hasn't been easy. It's been a very rough road. Our relationship stopped talking to me for a while. He has had a very hard time with my decisions, thinking I ruined his life, took his grandchildren away from him, of all places to go to, to go to Israel. You know, I didn't do it to hurt him, but it did hurt him. You know, you hear a lot of stories about when a child becomes observant, there is a certain tension with the parents because it's moving away from the way that they are raised. But often once you have kids and they see how good the marriages or how happy the kids seem, then the parents often come around. But it seems like that's not exactly what happened to you. No, that's not what happened. Both my parents are still living, so I'm going to be very cautious about how uh, open I am about certain things out of respect for them. But uh, no, that's not what happened. And 
We also, when I look back at it, took too much of a strict line, I think. For example, we wouldn't let them drive to us on Shabbat to have Friday night dinner with us, which now that I look back on it was a mistake. And I'm not a, a rabbi and I'm not giving a halachic mm-hmm. you know, thing here about whether it's allowed or whether it's not allowed. Although I can tell you that there are many rabbis, especially here in Israel, that do allow it now for families to drive because they say it's better to have Friday night dinner with the family than not, you know, even if it means breaking Shabbat by getting into a car. But we were not wise enough, I think, at the time to make that distinction, and that that was hurtful. And and actually, I do see their point on that. I mean, I, we could have been more forthcoming on that, especially given the fact that within a few years, we were going to be moving and leaving Los Angeles and coming to Israel. So that I, that's something that I do regret. But look, I mean, I understand the parents feel rejected, like suddenly... You'll eat in their house, but not really. Like you're starting to look at the ingredients of the food. And and I know I've seen it now from the other side because, and I'm getting a little bit ahead, but not all my children stayed religious. So there's somewhat, there's definitely a, a hurtful feeling like I didn't just raise you like this on a whim, you know, right. this, I really believe in this lifestyle and you're rejecting it. So, but what's interesting is that because of how I was really rejected and hurt by my parents, I think I have tried to not do that to my kids. Like to, I hope you would have to ask them to <laughs> let them know, to let them know clearly that I love them to pieces. And like, if they need a heart transplant, they're coming to me, but I don't necessarily agree with their choices. And those are two very different things. And I think some parents have a hard time separating those two. And, uh, and you're right. This is a very fraught issue for many, many people. Yeah, it is very hard because uh, my wife and I have three kids and I often think with how hard we've worked to become observant, if all three of my kids turn 18 and just throw it away, I'll be like, what was this whole journey for if not to instill it in the next generation? Right. Especially when you don't come from a religious background, you do work hard at it and you you know the other side, you know the choices. So it it is absolutely very difficult. But where I've come to, and this is maybe one of the the better things about getting older is everybody's got their journey. I have my journey. If you told me, you know, 50 years ago where I would be today, I wouldn't have believed you. And my kids have their journey. And uh, because I love them, because I had a very big hand in creating them, and because I do believe that Hashem loves them, then he's got whatever it is planned for them. And I hope that they're up to it. I do think that there's a tremendous value to Shabbat, especially Shabbat, that it is just like a gift of, of time and space. But they're going to have to make their own decisions. And uh, in the meantime, I can work on the grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> So so before we get to the grandchildren, let's pick up your story again where sure. we left off. Uh, so you're in Los Angeles. You've met the man that you want to marry. So you both go to college in Los Angeles before going to Israel? So we were at UCLA. I was actually, even while I was in high school, I was at UCLA. They had like a special program for high school seniors. You could already go to UCLA. So I was there for a couple of years. I was desperate to get back to Israel. My parents did not want me to come on the usual gap year program were the B'nai Akiva programs that they had. So I finally, finally, finally wore them down. And I came for my sophomore year to Hebrew University, which wasn't a religious program. So that was okay. And it was Hebrew U. I had an incredible year. It was 7980. I have to say, I spent most of the year in the Sinai desert in a bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> 
was, I mean, it was before we left and uh, just traveling around the country, got some studies in, made some incredible friends. And I was away from Earl for that year. But he had said to me, he said, listen, you know, what if we break up and you didn't go to Israel for me and then we'll break up and here I ruined this chance you have of going. So it was hard. You know, we, we broke up and I dated some people here and he dated some people there. Um, he came to Israel towards the end of the year. We realized that what we had was really special. In the meantime, he got into medical school. So we knew that we were going to be going to St. Louis, which is where he got in, to a Jesuit school of all places. Wow. I learned the Lord's Prayer because I did <laughs> summer school there one summer. Yeah. Which turns out is totally a second temple liturgy. It is not anything Christian at all. It's actually really, I didn't realize it at the time and I felt really bad. Only later on did I realize it was like totally kosher. It was fine. But um, <laughs> so we were engaged for the first year. He was in St. Louis for a year on his own and I was, I was at UCLA and then we got married in June of 81 and I joined him in St. Louis for two years. And our oldest daughter, Ellie Sheva, was born during that time in St. Louis. And I got my, like I said, I got my bachelor's degree. And then we moved back to L.A. because I got into dental school. And he f did his residency at Kaiser in Los Angeles while I decided what I was doing, as I already said before. And then in 1988, we said we already had three. We had had another daughter and a son in the meantime. I was going to school at night. And we said, like, we need to go. Ellie Sheva was five. I had been accepted to the doctoral program for psych, and I really, really wanted that doctorate. But uh, it just felt like if we didn't go then, we were going to get stuck. There's like points in your life where you can make a move, and if you don't then, stuff happens. So we came. We left it all, and we came. Okay, so where did you land in Israel? Like, How did you make it happen, and, and what were you doing career-wise when you got there? What I was doing career-wise was being pregnant and nursing. I was uh, seven weeks pregnant with our fourth uh, when we got here. And uh, we looked around Jerusalem. We wanted to live in Jerusalem, not only because my in-laws weren't in Jerusalem, but it was part of it. They were in the Shamron. But we wanted to live. So we looked all around, like satellite around Jerusalem, and we settled on Efrat which was very young at the time, just a couple hundred families. And we came here. We've been here ever since. And he opened to practice in Jerusalem. I was very busy. Then we had a fifth child. I had five under the age of eight. But then I got started getting involved with some of the local happenings here, which I didn't think was going to happen, but it did. I was just happy to hang. We didn't have a dryer. I was just like happy to hang my clothes up in the beautiful Judean air and like <laughs> just feel so happy that we were living in Israel and then things kind of spiraled into, they haven't ended since then, of activity. So give me a sense, though, when you're in Efrat, from a religious perspective, like what's the environment like within your home and like the community that you're part of? So what's interesting when you move to Israel, especially from the States, but I would imagine from any English-speaking country, on the one hand, you want to be with other English speakers because like, you want people who culturally are the same. On the other hand, that's somewhat of a mistake because it takes longer than to integrate into Israeli society. So I think Efrat was a good balance. I mean, our kids are all native English speakers. We spoke English in the home, but they also had Israeli friends. So, I mean, so, like I'll ask them, what do you dream in or what do you read in? And I get different answers, you know, some in Hebrew, some in English, but they're all really fluent in both. But it made it harder for me because really my friends were also like expatriate Americans. So it took me a, a long, and I wasn't working out of the home. So I was really speaking English much more than anything else, that made it difficult. If I had to recommend to somebody, I would you know, recommend that they try and get themselves more into an Israeli environment. It's harder at the beginning, but I think it's healthier. But you know, a few minutes ago, we mentioned like a dissonance. You were talking about that, a dissonance between the home and the school.
school. And one of my kids said that to me recently, that, you know, we were sending them to pretty orthodox, you know, Torah-based schools here in Efrat, but at home we're listening to, you know, rock music from the 70s and 80s, because that's our music, and um, watching TV, you know, because even though there wasn't much on in those days, um, that they didn't have cable or anything like that. And my husband, who's a total sports fanatic, was really suffering because he didn't have his games. Um, so maybe there was too much of a dissonance on that level also. But, you know, it also becomes what you're comfortable with. Like, I wasn't suddenly going to turn into, you know, someone who had been raised on kibbutz. Uh, it, that's not my background. So you know, it's very hard to find that middle ground. For some of the kids, it was a good middle ground. For others, it wasn't. You know, so that's what happened here. But it's a, it was a wonderful, it still is a wonderful community. At the time, you didn't have to lock your doors. Like, it was really safe. It's different now. It's a bigger community. And with that comes some people who, you know, don't always follow the rules. But we didn't want to go to a kibbutz because we didn't want everybody poking in our business all the time. Um, there were other communities here that were a little more, where you had to really be involved. A lunch food was another possibility, but it was very much educators uh, very involved in the yeshiva there. So anyhow, we landed here because we figured it was the kind of community where we could be as involved as we wanted to, but also shut our door if we didn't want to. So of course, in the end, I, I became incredibly involved, but it wasn't because I had to. It was because I wanted to. And that, and that makes a difference. So talk a little bit about that involvement. So as I mentioned in the intro about you becoming a councilwoman in Efrat, so is that what you're referring to about getting involved in local politics? First, it wasn't official roles. We came in 1988. So the first so-called intifada had already started in 87. And it definitely, things were already starting. There was some violence and things were already starting to get rough on the roads. And journalists would come out. And, and I found myself, you know, speaking to journalists and talking to people. And, and then someone that I knew was talking to groups that came out. They wanted to talk to settlers. And I said, you know, I could probably do that. And I've got the time. So, uh, so I started doing that. And then what ended up happening is, in the elections, I think in 1994 or 95, someone asked me to be on the list for the local council, to run for local council, not affiliated with any parties. And uh, so I ended up a councilwoman. And that's when our sixth child was born. The first meeting that we had, I brought the leftover cheesecake from his breed because, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was, that was what was going on. I found myself always in the opposition here on the local council for whatever reason. My Hebrew got so much better. It took me four times as long to read all the reports and everything as everybody else. I was the only, for a while, I was the only woman on the council. For a while, I was definitely the only non-native uh, Israeli, or at least someone who hadn't been here for a long time. And I made some catastrophic mistakes that people still laugh at. Like one classic story is there was a discussion. There was a family that somehow, for whatever reason, needed to be removed from Efrat. There were a lot of problems. And I d could not understand what the problem was with this family. And so finally I asked, what's the problem with the Narcoman family? Because I thought Narcoman was their last name, like Goldberg. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that Narcoman is a drug addict in Hebrew. <laughs> so, I mean, once everybody stopped laughing, they explained to me, and then it became obvious, obviously there's a drug addict <laughs> family living in one of the apartments, they have to be removed. So I made a few just amazing mistakes. Um, what I didn't realize at the time was that I was having a tremendous impact on my kids. I mean, I, I was doing it for them, but I wasn't, I wasn't aware so much that they were watching. They're always watching. But they're always watching. And it turns out that they saw, they learned from that, that you should get involved. And if you want something to be done, you can let someone else do it, but then they're not going to do it the way you want it done. And look, it was in the, uh, 
to go forward a few years, the summer of 2005, when they had the so-called disengagement, basically destroying the Jewish communities of Gaza and, and pulling all the Jews out, I moved down there with some of my kids. We were there for the summer. We were helping the farmers pick their herbs. I was talking to journalists. We were doing whatever we could. Um, we were there until the last day. One of the most difficult things I have ever heard was my Neely, my youngest, who at the time was whatever, she wasn't even 10 years old, running up to me and saying, the soldiers are coming, the soldiers are coming. And to hear her say that in a tone of fear broke my heart. I mean, I grew up a lot. I am much wiser and sadder than I was when we came, much more realistic about things, and also much more in awe of the fact that this is just an absolute miracle. Because if all these people are flawed, and so many decisions are made that are wrong, and we are still such a magnificent country, and doing so many things that most people in the world have no idea about the impact that Israel is making on the world, on it, from their cell phones to the medications they're taking, to the drip irrigation that's growing their food, then something much, much bigger than man could design is happening here. And the fact that maybe I'm playing a part in it, a little part, it's difficult to comprehend sometimes. And that moment that you just referenced where your daughter is scared about the soldiers coming, did that lead you to kind of second guessing the way that you were involved? Did you change the kinds of things that you were doing or you sort of tried to explain it to your daughter and, and plow forward? I mean, we explained to them that the soldiers were being forced to do this. I mean, many soldiers were not happy. Look, I didn't hide from my kids the, the fact that things are difficult and sometimes there is no answer. There just is no answer. Just be aware of what's happening. Be aware of what you're thinking. And so it just got me thinking a lot about a lot of things. And mainly, I'm constantly now asking why. You know, not necessarily what happened, but why it happened. And that works very well for me as a tour guide. Uh, just to jump ahead a little bit, a couple of years later, I became a, you know, a full-time Israeli licensed tour guide, which I absolutely love. It's to be an educator out in the field and uh, to really try and put things into context. Last year, I got uh, another master's degree in land of Israel studies and archaeology. And I think the combination of my two master's degrees is, is very unique and very interesting. Not just knowing the history and what happened, but the psychology. Why did people do certain things when they did them? And what repeats itself? Every generation you have, it's the same people almost doing the same thing. And it, so if you don't, you know, learn from history, the good things and the bad things, then, you know, you are, you are going to repeat them. And I'm just totally fascinated by, you know, how people work with the fact that I have great faith. And I feel that Hashem, there is a plan. There is some kind of master plan. We all have the freedom to, you know, do our own thing within that plan. And again, that tension, if you will, is a very interesting way to live. So you just brought up becoming a tour guide. So tell me how you got into that, the kind of tours you lead, and a little bit about the clients who usually hire you to give tours. Right. So when my kid, when my youngest was 12 and I realized that I could like really, you know, like do a career now, and I wasn't interested in the psychology anymore, even though I use it all the time. So someone suggested that I go take the tour guide course because I love the country and I was taking people around anyway. And I figured, great, the course itself is a phenomenal course and you, you have the best professors. Some of my closest friends are people that I went through the course with because we had this phenomenal experience, but I fell in love with guiding. And I realized that a lot of the things that I knew and the skills that I had could really come together. 
a lot of the passion that I have for this country. And not in a political sense. I I, I try, most of my guiding is not political guiding. I, I just want to, you know, get people to explore Israel and to care about Israel. Um, I do now, though, work for an organization called One Israel Fund, whose focus is on the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, because a lot of the mainstream Jewish organizations don't help those communities. So for them, I will do more, you know, political guiding. I'll take people into places in Judea and Samaria, meet the people, understand the communities. So that's a great balance. But I also guide Christians, and I love guiding Christians also because, you know, a lot of their stories here as well. And I remember asking the first Christian group, or one of the early ones that I guided, I said, look, I got to ask you, how come you took me, like an Orthodox Jew, so we can't travel on Shabbat, and we're eating only in kosher restaurants, and kind of, you know, hamstringing your, is that a word, hamstringing, whatever, your, um, your trip. And they said, but you know the Bible. Like a secular Israeli, how would how would we connect to him at all? And you're the one who can get us into the world that he was in, which is right. what we're trying to find out. So that was really eye-opening for me. And I've had some extraordinary trips with all kinds of people, Jews, Christians, non-affiliated, college. Um, I, I like guiding people who want to learn. I spent a, an extraordinary amount of effort and time in learning things in order to pass them on. I don't know them for me. I mean, I already know them. I, I learned them in order to teach them and to try. And what's so challenging for me is when I'm with a tourist, you know, we've emailed a couple of times. I know the basic things about them and we're going somewhere and I know 40 things about that place. I could tell them maybe two or three. That's all they have the patience to hear. What, what is it about that place that will resonate for them, that will connect them? And it's very, very challenging because again, I don't really know them that well, and uh, but I love it. And especially like very religious Jews who come and now they're learning Bible with me in a completely different way because we're learning it in the place. And all of a sudden they're understanding why something happened because it happened here and the hill was there and the, you know, the ambush was there. And, and all of a sudden it clicks like you watch their eyes and it's like, oh, and I love that. Oh, so that that's been, you know, on a professional level. And it's been very hard the last two years not being able to do that. Now people are coming back and I'm so excited. And again, I have this new degree, so I've got even more to share with them. Uh, and my kids laugh at me like people pay you to talk to them. Why on <laughs> earth would anybody do that? But um, but what was interesting is that I spent my 50s trying to overcome my fears. So like I went zip lining in Costa Rica with women that I had never met before. That was a phenomenal trip. And I had a, a couple of very big Hashem moments in Costa Rica in the rainforest, which is just like nature on crack. And it's just like a very intense feeling of the world. So it doesn't only have to happen in Israel. It doesn't. The, those portals are other places. And I went, you know, whitewater rafting in Montenegro, and I jumped out of a plane here in Israel. I learned how to scuba dive. I went to Thailand with one of my daughters, and I went scuba diving, which is unbelievable. If you've ever gone, swim with the fishies. It is a whole, <laughs> it was a really, it was a religious experience. This whole world that Hashem created down here that I had no idea. And uh, it was really beautiful. And I also think that there's a word in Hebrew called yirah, yirat shamaim, and very often it's translated as fear of God, but really it should be awe, awe in the sense of like the wow that you can't contain. A lot of people are religious out of fear, like if I don't do it right, I'll get punished. I don't want to do it for that reason, because I'll get punished. I want to do it because I love God. He's given me so much that the least I can do is not eat a cheeseburger. Like, it's not that big of a deal if that if he doesn't want me to. You know what I mean? This is like a, this is a partnership. 
And uh, I have to uphold my side because he has more than upheld his when it comes to me, like beyond anything I could have ever asked for. And so given you did all this crazy stuff, I have to ask you what's on the bucket list to get done in your 60s that you haven't done yet. You've done so many different types of things. You have such a diversity of backgrounds. So I'm curious what's on the bucket list going forward. Well, first of all, I want to get better at the things I'm already doing. Uh, I have a podcast once a week, Rejuvenation, so I want to keep doing that and doing it better. I love interviewing people, as as you probably do, and you're excellent at it. Everyone has a story. There's something different about everybody. If you can grab it, it's it's a great feeling. To become a better tour guide also, to, you know, go to different places and connect people um, with other things. But also, I would love to get to Machu Picchu. I've got Iceland on my bucket list also to go to. I went there. um, Oh, isn't it as amazing as people say? It's like being on another planet. If you told me it was Mars, I would have believed you. Right. So that that's what I that's what I want to do. Yeah. I don't know if it'll be this summer because COVID still seems to be out there, but but hopefully at some point. So I'm I'm what I have is insatiable curiosity, and I want to keep filling that as long as I as long as I absolutely can. And you also just mentioned your podcast. So before we close with our lightning round, I should help promote a fellow podcaster. So tell me what what yours is about, the themes, the type of guests you have on. Oh, wow. It's totally eclectic. It's called Rejuvenation. It's on the Land of Israel Network. And it's once a week. And I will just interview whoever I think is interesting, somebody who wrote a book. I've done politicians and journalists, uh, a lot of people. I try to have people on who are from Israel, but it doesn't always work out like that. It turns out that I know some really outrageously interesting people. <laughs> and if I have access to them, then I want my listeners to have access to right. them also as much as possible. And tell our listeners the name of the podcast one more time and how they can check it out. I mean, it's on SoundCloud and on all those places. Rejuvenation with Eve Harrow, Harrow with one R. And at some point when we can get out of here, I would love to continue. I used to be a scholar in residence. I go out and speak in synagogues and churches and community centers because there's still a value to having somebody in front of you. You know, I mean, Zoom is great and all that, but being in a room with someone else, the body language and be able to ask questions and there's still a huge value to that. People are still very special. So I'm hoping to get out there and do that. Sounds like you have plenty, plenty on your list over the next. If your listeners want to invite me, I'm happy to come. (laughs) You certainly have a lot on the list for your 60s. So let's close with our lightning round. I'm going to ask you some super quick questions. Are you ready? You got it. Yeah. Okay. So I imagine when you give a tour, people say, take me to the Kotel. So besides that, what would you say is your favorite hotspot? Uh, The city of David is absolutely phenomenal. It's not in the old city. It's the ancient city of David. A lot of it is underground. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really, it's like, you know, opening the Bible and and walking and seeing and the pilgrim stairs where they walk, we used to walk up to the temple. And that's really raw. It takes me a whole day to do the city of David now. It's not like a one hour. To really do it well uh, and bring in a lot of history, not just biblical history, but a lot of other history, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, why were they here? What was going on? What Could we have avoided the destruction? Like maybe if someone had made a different kind of a decision, what were the options? Because we learn history and we kind of think to ourselves, well, that's what happened. But there were there forks in the road the entire time. So what's going on? And really get people to try and think that and put that into context of the ancient world. So City of David is fantastic. Gush Etzion, where I live, is also amazing. Herodian, which is where King Herod, the palace fortress that he built, was also the headquarters of the Bar Kokhba revolt in the 130s. That's also an, an incredible site right now. But the truth is that this country is just full of treasures. And wherever people want to go, I'm happy to take them. Okay. And so when somebody calls you and is thinking of taking a tour of Israel, how long would you say they need to come to get a real sense of the country? How long should the tour Uh, be? uh, 
uh, as long as they possibly can. Like I live here <laughs> and I'm a tour. No, I mean I live here and I'm a tour guide, and I still haven't seen the whole country. There's mm-hmm. no end to it, and some things are changing all the time. As long as they can, as long as they can afford. Look, it's not a cheap trip, and right. usually the finances are what really dictates people coming. To hire a private tour guide is a luxury. I mean, you're having a top teacher privately for you know however long it is, and I totally understand that. And a lot of times, that's what will. It's not that people don't want to have a private tour guide. We all have finances. And I understand that too. I also travel and I have to think about that. But a tour guide adds a dimension that you just won't get on your own, not even with the best books. So so I would say, you know, come for as long as you possibly can. Don't take a tour guide the whole time. You have to have some chill time, some beach time, some some time to kind of let what you've learned percolate. But depending on who you are and what you want to learn, then pick those days and go with a teacher, you know, which is a tour guide. But stay as long as you can. And the food is outrageous. <laughs> so good. I mean, I do culinary tours. It's fresh. It's amazing. So, you know, eat out a lot. Like diet when you get home. That's my advice to them also. <laughs> Got it. And that's a good lead into my final question. As someone who just mentioned all the wonderful food that's there, what's a favorite restaurant, a favorite food item you've had or something you see in the shook that you recommend people eat? Give me a couple examples. Well, uh, not that uh, I'm such a big drinker, but the wines here are really something else now, especially for people who only drink kosher wine. And actually tomorrow I'm taking a few people up to, there's a winery where they're planting grapes from the olden times. Like mm-hmm. they did not drink Zinfandel in the temple. <laughs> so there's some, there's people doing research on what it was that we ate in the day, growing the dates and growing a lot of the food and the spices that grew in the day. So, I mean, I don't really have a favorite restaurant. It depends what I'm in the mood for. And sometimes just a dish of hummus that they just made, like it's hot when they put it on your plate with a really incredible pita and a chopped Israeli salad. Sometimes that's just the best meal. It could be simple. It doesn't, I'm not into like fancy stuff, Mm -hmm. but when the ingredients are fresh and creative, then there's really just nothing like it. That is a tasty one to end on. Eve, you are officially out of the lightning round. And I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.